Good morning. Good to be with you, Highland Community Church. Happy Mother's Day. We want to thank the grandmothers, great-grandmothers, mothers, wives, surrogate mothers, women who act in motherly ways towards us. We are so grateful for you. Certainly you deserve a Mother's Day. You deserve many Mother's Days. And we hope that today is a wonderful day for you. As I thought about Mother's Day, I thought about something I read in the African News and History. It's an online report. And the article was entitled, I know, it's not going to sound good. It's entitled, Eight Lies of a Mother. You're probably thinking to yourself, did the boy hit his head against a rock? It's Mother's Day and he's going to talk about the eight lies of a mother? I would never have titled it that way. I would have titled it the eight loves of a mother. They're not lies, they're loves, and they're quite common among many of you Highland women. The account is about a young man named Chika. Chika is an African word meaning God is the greatest. And Chika is about a young boy who grew up with a father and mother destitute in Africa. They barely had enough means for one meal a day. They had subsistence living. They were living on the edge, but it was a happy family. It was a God-glorifying family. And Chica remembers that every so often they would have enough money to buy some rice. And his mom would cook the rice and she would put it in three bowls. And then she would kind of nibble at hers and her husband would eat his and Chica would eat his. And then his mom would take most of hers and pour it in his and his father's bowls. And Chica remembers asking her mom, don't you need to eat the rice? And her mom says, no, I'm not hungry. Now the title would say that was lie number one. I would say, no, no, no. That is love number one. That is a mother loving her son and her husband. Because they had a subsistence living, they would often go fishing, as was many of the other villagers. They would go fishing in order to get some meat. And when they would catch a few fish, they would come home and Chica's mom would make fish soup. And she would ladle it out actually always in two bowls, and then she would take the fish that she had pulled all the fish off of, it had just bones, and she would kind of nibble on it. There really wasn't any meat left, but she would nibble on it. And Chica would say, Mom, you need some fish soup. And she would say, No, I don't like fish soup. That's love, number two. In Chica's village... The only way out was education, but education cost money. They had very little, but his mother would spend the day with him, educating him, and then at night she would get matches from the local match factory, and she would count them out and put them in boxes, and in the morning she would bring them back to the factory for small amounts of money. She was saving up so that when high school came, she could pay for her son to go to high school. And Chica remembers many times he would wake up in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning, roll over, and there would be his mother 
counting out matches and putting them in boxes. And he would say, Mom, you need sleep. <laughs> and his mom would always say, I'm not tired, but you need sleep, son. Go to bed. While he was still in elementary school, homeschooled elementary school, Chica's father died. His mom was alone, raising a son, destitute, on the brink of starvation, caring for her son, earning what she could, providing for them together. After several years of this, a relative came to her and said, we need to find you a husband. And she said, no, no. No, I don't have time for that. Uh, no, I don't need that kind of love. I'm just going to take care of Chica. I don't need that kind of love. Love, number four. When Chica was old enough to go to high school, she managed to pay for it. At the end of high school, you would take tests, and they were in a far-off city. And so Chica and his mom got up really early one morning and walked the distance. His mom stayed outside in the hot African sun. Chica went in and all day long took his test. And when he came out, he noticed his mother was wet, perspiring from, from head to foot. And she opened up a thermos that clearly had not been touched all day. And she poured some tea for her son. And her son could see how wet she was from perspiration. And he said, Mom, you need to drink some tea. And she said, No, I don't like tea. You drink it, son. Well, Chica was one of the few that had risen in his class, had done so well that he got a job. And as he got a job, it was actually in the United States, he began to earn some money. And he would try and send the money home, and she would send it back and say, I have enough. Love, number six. A while later, Chica had gone through college and grad school. His company had put him through his education. His salary was bumped up, and he said to his mom, I've got enough money to bring you to the States. And she said, no, no, no. I have all I need. You make a life for yourself. I pray for you daily. I'll write to you. Make a life for yourself. I'm fine where I am, love. Number seven. A while later, Chico got word that his mother was sick. He got on a plane and came back to Africa. She was very far along in cancer. She was just a small skeleton of what she had been. She was clearly in pain, and, and he grieved over her, and she said, don't worry, honey, I'm fine. Love number eight. And soon after that, she went to be with the Lord. And I share that account because I think that's the way many grandmothers and great-grandmothers and mothers and surrogate mothers and wives and godly women at Highland Act, thinking of others, serving others, honoring others. That's the way Chica's mother raised Chica. And it's the way so many of you women have impacted our lives. And we're grateful it's not enough to have one Mother's Day, but we have this day to rightly celebrate you. May you be blessed today. As I thought about what we would talk about, 
what passage. I realized we're in Philippians, and I thought, you know, the first woman, the first person that we know of who came to Christ in Philippi was Lydia, a woman from Acts 16. We only have five verses, 11 to 16, very little narrative, but it packs a punch. Let me read to us a little bit about Lydia and the text from Acts 16, picking up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. Nea means new, polis is city, a new city. And from there to Philippi, which had been founded 400 years earlier in 354 B.C., by the king of Macedonia, Philip II. Obviously a very humble man. Philip II named the city Philippi, named it after himself, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, sometimes we hear this word Sabbath and we think it means Saturday or more specifically sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, but Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word sabbat. It actually means rest. It's a day set aside, a time set aside to gather together to corporately worship God. Most of the sabbats were from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, which is true in this text, but they could be any day of the week. It doesn't really mean Saturday. It means the day of rest to focus on the Lord. But here we could read Sabbath as Saturday. On the Saturday, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. The Greek word prosuke, it's technical here. It talks about a place where people gathered on the first day of the week or Saturday or Sunday, depending on the calendar, and they would pray together to God. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Today that is Akasar. Akasar is across the Aegean in the very west part of Turkey. It's about 350 miles from Philippi. Akasar literally means white castle. So you would expect a white castle there. There isn't. There is a mausoleum that's white in center city but it's called White Castle because of the white marble that comes and is mined from this place that it was used for many large buildings. That's the city of Thyatira. And she is a seller of purple goods, a worshiper of God. By the way, today in Akasar, there is no Christian church, none. There is no evangelical witness anywhere in that vicinity. And there really was not very much during the time of Lydia, but her heart so longed for God that God met her where she was and she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Paul is on the second of three missionary journeys. He's going to have three large missionary journeys where he travels all around the world. 
On this second missionary journey, he travels throughout Israel, then he goes to Syria, then eventually he goes to what we would call Turkey and plants a number of churches, and then he goes to what we would call Greece, the northern part they called Macedonia, and that's where Philippi is, and he plants that church. I believe that the second missionary journey is from AD 49 to 52, and by the time he gets to Philippi, it's AD 51. He will plant the church with Lydia in Philippi, and it will be another decade later, AD 61, before he writes the epistle that we study called Philippians. Now you remember how he gets there. Paul is on that second missionary journey. He's a man with a purpose. He's a man with a plan. He wants to go to Asia, not Europe. That's the plan. Go to Asia. He wants to take the gospel to Asia, but he's given a vision of a man in Macedonia who says, come to us. And so Paul follows the prompting of God. And he goes not to Asia, his purpose and plan, but to Europe to plant the church and specifically to lead a woman, Lydia, as well as other women and their household, to Christ. If you ever wonder how important both genders are to the Lord, think of this. Paul had a plan. He had a purpose. He's going to one continent, but because of a woman in her household, he sends her to another continent. That's the importance of Lydia to the heart of God. So, Paul has this vision. He follows the promptings of the Lord. I remember a number of years ago, it was 19 years ago, uh, I had this sense that the church I was pastoring in Pennsylvania, a good church, an excellent church, called Fellowship Today, that it was time to complete the service that I had there and that God was leading me elsewhere. And I really thought it was going to be a slight career change and the readers of my doctoral dissertation arranged for me to get a faculty position down south as a Bible teacher in a Bible college seminary to be the chair of a theology department. I thought, man, this is the dream job. It's down south, a little warmer than Pennsylvania, and they're going to actually pay me to teach theology. This sounded really good. At the same time, I received a VHS. I know, you young people have no idea. You think I'm speaking in tongues. A VHS disc from this church in Wisconsin, and I watched it. And I said to my wife, I think, I think God's calling us to Wisconsin. Isn't Wisconsin colder than Pennsylvania? And this church, really a good church, but it was 50% smaller than the one I was presently pastoring, was God going to send us to a colder place, to a smaller church? And yet, I felt the prompting of God in my heart. And we've never regretted that decision. Now, I want us to be careful. Promptings from the Holy Spirit are subjective. Not because of the Holy Spirit, because we tend to do what we want to do and interject our hopes with the promptings. So whenever we have a prompting from the Lord, and I think they ought to be rare, 
We need to weigh them against the object of truth, the inerrant, inspired truth of Scripture. But there was nothing in Scripture that said to Paul, you need to go to Asia when the prompting said go to Europe, so he went to Europe. There's nothing in the prompting that says, I need to go down south rather than Wisconsin, and so I followed the prompting. That's what Paul does, and, and he ends up in Philippi. And when Paul gets to Philippi, the truth is he doesn't do what we normally see in the book of Acts. Now, you are students of the book of Acts. You know that he plants about 60 different churches. And when he gets to a new city, his habit is to go on the Sabbat, generally sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, to go on the Sabbat Friday night to the local synagogue and to ask to preach. And that's kind of a head scratcher, isn't it? You say to yourself, I don't get it. Why would this visiting rabbi from far away be given access to the pulpit? Can you imagine that happening at Highland? Uh, somebody walking in on Sunday saying, hey, I'm a pastor. I'm from North Carolina. I'd like to preach. And we'd say, great, and not here. We would never do that, right? But we have to understand that Paul is a fairly well-known entity. It probably, though debatable, is not an overstatement to say that from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., there were five very famous rabbis. There was Shammai, who was a conservative. There was Hillel, who was a little less conservative. There was his grandson, who's mentioned in Acts 22, Gamaliel, who actually is the instructor of Paul. About 150 years later, there would be Judah Hanasi, who's the redactor, the compiler of the Mishnah, and Paul. Paul's really well known. He's the star pupil of Gamaliel the Older. And so when Paul comes into a synagogue anywhere in the known world, it's likely that some of them have heard of Paul. But when he gets to Philippi, he doesn't go to the synagogue Friday night, he goes down to the river Saturday morning. We say, why? Well, Bible scholars tell us that Jewish law states that you must have 10 Jewish men in order to legally have a synagogue within a city. At this time, Philippi is between 10,000 and 15,000. I think most likely it's 13,000 people. And there aren't 10 men, so they didn't have a first century synagogue, which, by the way, archaeology supports. There is no first century synagogue that has been found. So if you don't have a synagogue, you set up a prosyuke, a house of prayer, which is not a building, it's not a lean-to, it's a location, generally down by the river, because Jews want ceremonial cleansings, they need the water, and so Paul, knowing that there's not a synagogue, this is a Roman city filled with Gentiles, which, by the way, explains why in the book of Philippians, there's actually no citation of the Old Testament, though there's a number of allusions to it in chapter 2. There's no citation of the Old Testament because these people haven't had the Old Testament. They're Romans. They're Gentiles. There's no synagogue. So Paul goes down to the river looking for the prosyuke, the place of prayer, and what he finds is Lydia and a few other women and no men. 
Now this isn't so much a Mother's Day statement, though it might appear that way, but it's one of observation. It's a generalization, and generalizations have lots of exceptions. But in my experience of 30-plus years of pastoring, I would say that women have taken prayer more seriously than men. And prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer by women like Lydia moves the heart of God. And if this is true in our lives, men, we need to shake ourselves from our roots and decide to become men of prayer. We need to be people of prayer. Now, sometimes when we talk about prayer, people say things like, well, people pray and you pray in order to change yourself. I'm not sure that's exactly right. I think, yes, prayer changes us, but it does more than that. It's a both and not an either or. In fact, I think prayer pulls us out of our anxiety to some degree. Isn't Paul going to say that in Philippians 4, 6, and 7? I'm not saying all anxiety is solved by prayer. Sometimes we need a counselor, sometimes medication. But Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what happens? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Recently, I was with three other pastors that pastor a little bit larger churches. We got together. We often do this, and we share some things that help us to shepherd better. We even share our mistakes so that we all don't make the same mistake. We can help one another to avoid some stupidity. And we were talking, and and we realize that all of us have a little bit higher levels of anxiety and a little more discouragement than we normally would have, probably because of what's going on around us. And I thought to myself, I need to pray more. Not that prayer takes away all anxiety. I, I don't believe that. But it does lower the anxiety because when I pray, I keep my mind on the Lord, Right? And he gives his peace, which surpasses all understanding, to guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Isaiah said? In Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on the Lord. Because when our minds are stayed on the Lord, we trust in God. And it lowers the anxiety. So it's true that prayer does change us, but... God also uses the honoring prayers of his people to transform us and others and the surroundings around us. One of the prayers I often utter is James 1, 5, and 6. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask for wisdom by faith. And God who gives generously and without reproach will grant the wisdom. Can you imagine? When we ask God to give us wisdom by faith... He grants it. I think of James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person availeth much. It's not that my prayer has the power to change. It's that God uses my prayer to change my surroundings. An incredible prayer at this time in COVID-19 is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Many of you pray it. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them, then I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. Prayer matters. God responds to the prayers of his people, prayers like that of Lydia. And on the first Sabbath, the first Sabbath without a synagogue, Paul went down to the river to find a prosuke, a house of prayer. And what he found was Lydia and some women who were praying and honoring the Lord. Now this Lydia is not really a name. I know we use it that way. I'm going to use it that way for the rest of the sermon, but it's probably a designation. More likely, it's a location. I don't think it's the name Lydia. I think it's the designation Lydia. She's from Thyatira across the Aegean Sea in the city of Thyatira in the province of Lydia. Lydia means a Lydian woman. I don't think so much that this is her name. I think this is where she's from. And the fact that we aren't given her name probably clues us in to something about this woman. I think she was a slave of Rome. Rome had between 60 and 100 million slaves. And understand that as pernicious as their form of slavery was, it's different than American slavery where we didn't even consider slaves to be persons and they had no property and no rights. In the Roman Empire, a slave had their own house, their own apartment. They received an income. And if they were incredibly frugal, they could actually save up enough and purchase their own freedom. That appears to be what Lydia has done. This is a Proverbs 31 industrial woman. She is born a slave. She is frugal enough, industrious enough to work hard, to earn enough money, to save it, to buy her freedom, and then to start a business, a dyer of purple cloth from Thyatira. Now, purple cloth is for the elite, the wealthy, and you need to know there were two types of purple cloth. The more common actually came from Thyatira. It comes from the matter plant, and it's kind of a purple-red color, and it's pretty good stuff. But that's not what she sells. She sells Tyrian purple. It's a really deep purple. It's really expensive. Let me illustrate it this way. Ladies, it's, it's Mother's Day. Suppose you're going to buy a really fancy pair of shoes. You might go to Saks, right? And you'll drop a couple Benjamins on some really nice shoes. Or maybe it's such an incredible occasion that you get some Jimmy Choo shoes, which are going to hit you back seven bennies or, or maybe $1,000 a grand. That's what Tyrian purple is. It's Jimmy Choo shoes. You would take this cloth to make scarves or to make the tapestry to cover as upholstery your furniture. Now, I know what you're probably saying in your living rooms right now. 
You're saying, how does Jeff know anything about Jimmy Choo pumps? I don't. I went to Pastor Jared and I asked him, and he was only too happy to open up his Pinterest account, whatever on earth that is, to teach me a little bit about Saks and Jimmy Choo shoes. It's kind of embarrassing, but you know, the truth hurts. Moving on, this is a savvy businesswoman. She's a Proverbs 31 woman, and she's also a worshiper of God. Now think about that phrase in verse 14. She's a worshiper of God. Now taken at face value, we might say, oh, probably on the worship team. Maybe she plays the drums or the bass, or, or maybe she's one of the singers or plays the keys. But this is actually a technical term. A worshiper of God, when referring to a Gentile, refers to somebody who has forsaken the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, the worship of emperors, has forsaken all idolatry and has pursued the one true God of Scripture. A worshiper of God is really an Old Testament Gentile who is looking for, longing for the coming of the Messiah, who is placing their faith in a coming Messiah who will pay the penalty of sin, and so faith in this coming Messiah. And Paul, who is on his way to Asia, is redirected by God to Europe, to this riverbed, to talk to this woman, to open up her heart, that she might know that the Messiah she's longing for has already come. It's Jesus Christ. And God opened up her heart and she believed. She believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Perfect God came down, took flesh, humanity, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life and then died a sinner's death, went to the cross for the wages or the payment of sin is death. And he died as a payment of our sin. And if by faith we would believe in Christ as our Savior, confess that we are sinners, agree with God that we sin and believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. And she became born again. Immediately she was baptized, she and her household. Baptism follows salvation. Baptism isn't the means of salvation, but it's a declaration that we have believed in Christ and now we are publicly saying that we are united with Christ, the, the death of the old nature, and we rise in newness of Christ. We are reenacting Jesus going down in the grave and rising on the third day. She and her family believed in Christ and then publicly declared it through baptism. And then I love what happens next. It's almost as though she knows that old chorus, that chorus that says, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm yours, Lord. Try me out and see. See if I can be completely yours. She says, if I have found favor in your eyes, I want you to stay at my house. She's a woman of means. We're not talking just Paul, but Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And we're not talking one night, probably at least three or four weeks. She says, I'm going to bankroll this thing. I want you to stay at my house. 
She doesn't say, you know what, I'm a baby Christian. People say that like eight years after they've come to Christ. I'm a baby Christian. And they say that to avoid the harder text. She says, no, no, no. Try me out and see. See if my faith is real. Try me out and see, please. I want to evidence my faith by utilizing what God has entrusted to me to advance the kingdom. When closing, just a few summary thoughts. The first is, again, sometimes God does impress things upon our heart. He impressed upon Paul not to go to Asia, the man with a plan, but to go to Europe to reach a woman who sought his heart. But when God presses things upon our heart, we need to compare them to the objective, inerrant, inspired truth of the scripture. And so long as it doesn't compromise any scripture, then we go forward. The second thing is I see that, that Lydia is a woman of prayer. Her heart is focused on the Lord. She talks to God. There isn't even a synagogue. There doesn't seem to be Jewish men to speak of in the city. But she yearns for God. She yearns to know about God. She yearns to commune with God. She is a woman of prayer. Like many of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and mothers and wives and surrogate mothers and women. And I trust some men as well. We need to be people of prayer. The third thing I see is God's divine appointment. This is beautiful. God took Paul, on a second of three missionary journeys, he's heading to Asia and sends, sends him to Europe that this woman and others might come to Christ. Maybe you're watching this video today. Somebody roped you into it. You have no idea why you're here, what you're doing. And maybe, just maybe, you're watching today to hear that God loves you, and he does. God loves you so much. And he wants you to be free from the bondage of sin. And when you die, to spend eternity with him in heaven. But there's bad news before there's good news. The bad news is you and I are sinners. Romans in the Bible, 3.23 says all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and I've already rooted to Romans 6.23 that the wage is what we deserve for our sin is death. To be separated God, from God forever. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and you're declared righteous, you're justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Maybe some of you are here by divine appointment across the airwaves. And you are the reason for this message. God wants you to open your heart to believe in Jesus. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. And finally, I am so impressed with this woman named Lydia. The first thing she does, it says, try me out and seek. See if I can be completely yours. She says to the men, if I have found favor in your eyes, stay here. Let me bankrupt this whole thing. I think she understands what Paul will write 
In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You and I do not work for our salvation. Jesus did all the work for us. Believe in him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's payment of our confessed and in the power of God's spirit, repented of sin. But having believed in Christ, we work out that salvation, which means we use our time, our treasures, our talents to advance God's kingdom. We don't say, hey, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm a baby Christian. No, no. We want to be Lydia Christians who says, try me out and see. See if I can be completely yours. We have a lot of women around Highland who are completely gods. Great grandmothers and grandmothers and mothers and wives and surrogate mothers and women who are sold out for Jesus. Thank you for your model. May we all take the next step in our relationship with Christ. Women, happy Mother's Day. Thanks for who you are, for all that you do. May God bless you today. Let me pray for you. Father God, bless these incredible women at Highland and in our community. These great grandmothers and grandmothers, these mothers and wives, these women, these surrogate mothers who have done so much for us. Bless them, encourage them. And Father, help us to all be like Lydia, people of prayer, people who are sold out for Jesus who use our time and our talents and our treasures for the kingdom. Help us to live for Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.